Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Rama Chalapa. Rama Chalapa is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He's a chief scientist at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Assured Autonomy. Before that, he was an assistant associate professor and later director of the University of Southern California's Signal and Image Processing Institute. This episode is all about artificial intelligence. Several recent stories about AI have shocked and worried me. We have deep fakes going viral on TikTok, AI reaching human levels of gameplay at the game Diplomacy, which is a language-based game of conquest and deception. And then you have the generative adversarial networks, or GANs, creating images from a line of text that rival and often exceed the work done by human graphic designers. Rama and I discuss all of these topics, as well as other topics like neural networks, the difference between narrow intelligence and general intelligence, the use of facial recognition software, the possibility of an AI engaging in racial discrimination, the future of work, the so-called alignment problem, and much more. So without further ado, Rama Chalapa. Okay, Rama Chalapa, thanks so much for coming on my show. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me on your show. So we're going to talk about your new book called Can We Trust AI? And this is a really timely topic because I've just gotten two pieces of news today about AI, which I'll talk to you about. One involving a deep fake going viral on TikTok and the other involving artificial intelligence being uh, shockingly good at a game called Diplomacy. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, I want to know how you got into the subject, how you became a subject matter expert on artificial intelligence. What's your story here? Yeah. Well, I, uh, when I was a graduate student at Purdue, I was doing my PhD there from 1977 to 81. Spring 1978 was my first course on artificial intelligence. And then I also took another course at University of Maryland in spring. As you know, AI has its origins in the summer workshop at Dartmouth in 1956. And from early 60s onwards, people had a lot of hopes for it. It was a very promising technology as we used to refer to it. So naturally, I was interested. My interest was in related fields like parent recognition and computer vision. So AI is uh, you know, one of the core courses we have to do. So the interesting thing is, even at that time, early on, much was expected of AI. And uh, so it didn't deliver what people thought uh, would, would come about. So it was in the first AI winter. So we, while we were interested in AI, we also looked at many special areas such as computer vision, which is my area. You know, what can we learn about images and videos and so forth? So I was interested in that and on and off, on and off. We have been working on AI and computer vision, machine learning, and so forth. Since 2012, what has happened in AI, there has been a paradigm shift. In the early days, we were more concerned about understanding the domain knowledge, the domain expertise, and trying to code them you know, in terms of models and rules and so forth. You may have heard about rule-based systems and Bayesian models and so on. From 2012, data has taken over AI. So the current AI is largely driven by data. 
you know, data which we collect from wearable sensors, from iPhones, from cameras, from this and that. So it's a different way of doing AI now. So we seem to have dropped the domain and uh, these data-driven methods are doing well in some applications and so forth. So this is now driving the interest in AI. So this is where uh, I am right now. I know we are using data-driven AI. I hope somewhere in the near future, we'll be able to integrate the domain knowledge and the data, and then AI will be able to do really good, I think. So it's a fascinating field. As you can see, there's so many applications in healthcare, in autonomous driving, uh, smart transportation, uh, climate change, and so on. So one can go on. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be an AI researcher. So a key development in AI, as I understand it, is, especially in the past 10 years, the advent of neural networks. And this is closely related to what you just mentioned, data-driven artificial intelligence. Can you explain why neural networks are different from the old school of artificial intelligence? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. Neural networks, they basically take inputs and then we train them. It's, uh, you know, in the good old days, I used to work on neural networks in the early 80s to mid 90s, and then it kind of went out of fashion and it's come back in the form of deep learning. Uh, Basically, neural networks don't have a lot of domain information. What it does is this, if there is a mapping from data to a label, Okay, let's say I see a picture of an apple, right? So there is picture is the data, and then I say it is an apple. It tries to understand this mapping. Okay, to the extent this mapping is unambiguous, so we all know what an apple looks like, and you know we we don't get confused about that. So that mapping is characterized by this neural network. It's like a complicated regression model. That's all it is. It's a hierarchical regression model. As you know, regression model in statistics, we have inputs, we have things that it depend on, and we try to find out the dependence and so we can predict. Like if you have a regression model for what the Dow Jones index should be like, you know, two days from now, then you will put all the variables like unemployment, consumer confidence, what the interest rate is, et cetera, et cetera. And then it'll tell you, oh, you know what? Dow Jones should be 32,000 or something like that. That's a regression model, prediction. The same kind of thing happens with neural network. It's a hierarchical regression model. The interesting thing about that, that is different from old AI. As I mentioned before, in old AI, we will have domain knowledge. You know, we, we understand, for example, one of the earliest AI system is mycin. You know, it was to understand some kind of a blood infection related thing. People understood what it happened, why it happens and what are the consequences. So we try to model that. So domain knowledge is the old AI. The new AI is mostly data driven. So that is the big difference. So what neural network does, will take a bunch of data. You have to tell the neural network for this kind of data, this is the output it should be. Okay, so it tries to understand that mapping. That's the difference between the old AI and the current AI. So in, in a neural network, let's say you're training it to identify images you know, something simple like fruits or just images in general, Yes, you're essentially training it on data. You're giving it the answers to the question on a large data set. And yes. it's figuring out how to become better at getting the answers. So what is actually happening, practically speaking, when yes. it's quote unquote improving itself? What does that actually mean? It simply means that, you know, anytime you have a decision engine, there are some metrics we have, how accurately, you know, how often it is correct, what mistakes does it make, and so on. You know, we have various terms to denote that. So we can actually measure 
how well it does. The other way you can measure how well it does is try to give it a new data that it has not seen, whether it is able to generalize. Let's say we go to a, one supermarket and we see apples. We go to some other supermarket. We are not confused. We know what an apple looks like. Generalizability, whether it will work across, you know, data sets collected at different sites and different places and different circumstances. For example, in computer vision, we worry about uh, the lighting conditions being different. I may be able to recognize you know, my laptop inside my home. If I take it outside, the lighting conditions are very different. Will the neural network learn? Does it get better? So we look for these kinds of uh, metrics. Generalizability is, is uh, one thing. And the second thing we also look for to say that it has learned well is if somebody attacks it. You know, for example, since you you know that the deep learning is very much dependent on the data, what if I poison the data that is being used, right? I kind of mess it up a little bit. It probably doesn't learn well. Does it have robustness, resilience? So those are you know a couple of things we look for. So accuracy is one of the easiest things to understand that as I increase the data set, it gets better and better at recognizing under very challenging conditions, occlusion maybe, uh, different lighting conditions, different poses and so forth. So those are some of the things we look for. So my understanding is that one difference between neural networks and uh, deep learning and simple algorithms, man-made algorithms, rule-based algorithms, is that we don't understand how neural networks are getting the right answer because they're learning and essentially you know I, I'm not a I may not have the right vocabulary here but changing their own code in order to just get better we actually don't understand what it is that they're changing conceptually in order to get better like what are they taking into account and that means it's a black box yes. where there could be processes going yes. on that we're ethically uncomfortable with you know neural network as I said is just try to understand the mapping right? It's a black box. It was like that for decades. In fact, when neural networks came in the early 80s, many computer vision researchers were not very high on that because in computer vision, we wanted to understand the modeling, modeling an object, modeling the environment, modeling the illumination conditions. And we were big on that. It's called physics-based computer vision. So here came the neural network. Oh, don't worry. Just give me the data and tell me the labels. I'm going to figure it out for you. So this black box has bothered a lot of computer vision people. But over the last five years, there are no methods. In fact, this is a big thing called interpretability of uh, AI, computer vision and neural networks and so on. So there are some methods available. You can probe into a neural network and kind of see where the excited are happening as it makes the decision and whether that makes sense. For example, if you have a very deep network, the bottom layers are somewhat very generic. They look for you know, elementary features like blobs and lines and points and things like that. As they go up, they are trying to learn some semantic concepts in terms of an object and, and, you know, how the, and other things like segmentation maps and so forth. So interpretability is very important. Because if somebody says, how did you arrive at this decision? We should be able to explain. Interestingly, the old AI was interpretable. We had decision trees. We had Bayesian you know, hierarchical models. So when we went to the data, we gained performance, but we lost the interpretability. So we have to bring it back and, and people are you know, working on that. It's a very important topic. I cover that in my AI class towards the end. So do you think it's possible to make deep learning transparent or is it impossible in principle? I think it is possible. What we do is we probe it. Listen, as most algorithms are, you can stress test the algorithms, right? You can change the input and kind of see what it does. This is the, the so-called you know, debugging of an algorithm. 
not only to make sure it works correct, where it fails, what are the performance bounds and so forth. So we are able to do that uh, given a deep learning algorithm. We can vary inputs, we can provide inputs with noise, we can provide partial inputs and so forth and see where the breakpoints are. And then there is something known as adversarial training. You can provide those kinds of inputs to make it stronger. For example, I have been told, and I like to drink bottled water. <laughs> and my kids tell me, Daddy, if you keep on drinking bottled water, if you're going to drink tap water one of these days, you are going to get sick because you don't have any immunity to different types of water. So just you know, drink whatever water, tap water you get, it's good for you. That is one way of strengthening, right? So if you drink very pure water, so-called the bottled water, and if you just trap water from a fountain. So likewise, deep learning, you can provide uh, noisy inputs and inputs with label noises and so forth. What we don't understand is how much noise can we give? Does it strengthen it or does it make it to learn wrong things? That is very, very difficult to figure out now. So it's mostly experimental right now. There's this important distinction between narrow intelligence and general intelligence. So I'm a huge chess fan and in the world of chess, computers have been much better than the very best humans for almost my entire lifetime. But, you know, and then something like 10 years ago, yes. the neural networks got better than the best algorithms and then Stockfish. And there's this whole competition between those two things. But in general, chess is a, is considered a narrow intelligence, right? The Stockfish and the rest that are yes. the better yes. than Magnus Carlsen, they could not write a paragraph as good as a 10-year-old, right? They, which is to say they can only do one thing, but they can do it better than all humans. And I've seen many other general AIs do better than human beings at very narrow tasks where the parameters are very bounded. Games are, are, are the classic case of this, right? You know what it means to win and to lose, and there are just a few rules. Yes. So yes. I guess my question is, do you think that narrow AIs, which have become better than humans, can be amalgamated into general AIs? Do you think there's anything about general intelligence that is special, that machines won't be able to overtake us at, at some time? Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. General intelligence is a goal. I mean, it's, it's like going to Mars. Now, The process of getting there will give you a lot of things. So this is what I like to say. Let me compare with a few things. Humans, we have common sense reasoning capabilities, you know. So we are able to compare and and able to recognize when things are not right. There's something about, you know, we have maybe pre-wired. And I'm not so sure about this. I'm I'm not comfortable with this. You have taught AI, especially in the data-driven, the mapping. This data, this label. So for us to expect that it will somehow transcend that and become a general AI, it's a big expectation. So what I feel is that you are going to have a lot of specialized AIs where performance can be better than humans. You know, I could give many examples. You say chess is a great example. From the early days onwards, that's where, you know, we were all interested because the rules are well defined and a computer can look at 20, 20 different, 30 different moves ahead, whereas humans can do maybe six or eight, the best amongst us. But the common sense reasoning is very different. We don't know yet. But what I tell people is that in the case of autonomous driving, that's another example in parallel. Do we really need to have a 100% automated driving car that works everywhere, Phoenix and Mumbai and Hong Kong? Maybe it's a great thing to have. Then we can all just relax. But to get there, we have all the other safety features that have come about, you know, things that want 
about cars in the adjacent lanes. The car, your car will tell you if you are about to hit the car in front of you. Beep sound comes. When you reverse, the cameras come. It can tell you who is behind you and so on. These are all great things to have. So just like that, you know, we want to do the fully autonomous car. I don't know when it will happen. Somebody thought it should be here by now, and it's not. But we have all these 80% things that help us. So attempt to get to general AI will help you to expand. But Mr. Coleman, if I only taught you in English and suddenly I ask you to be an expert in French, you may be able to do a little bit of that with some context and so on, but it's a totally different thing. So you are going to have very successful specialized AI that will find applications. You know, medicine, it's a great domain. And please stop me if I you know talk too much. I'm a professor, <laughs> right? So medicine, take a medicine. You have a general practitioner who kind of has an idea about what may be wrong, but then you have a specialist. And one specialist for cancer specialist is different from some other specialist. So this is very well appreciated in medicine that you will have many special AI. You know why for every disease, there is a different set of experiments are needed, different kind of data is needed, different kind of expertise is needed. So somebody who is an expert in brain may not you know, worry about GI. So you have a GI, but all of them together, they are there to take care of us. So one can think of many specialized AIs working like the specialty doctors, taking care of our entire body, right? But still, can they help us with our mind? Can they help us with our, you know, who we are? That is something in us. So the physical aspect, you know, can be taken care of multiple specialists. So this is how I like to think. Because once you are in the data-driven mode, data is very specific to a problem. And we have made it specific by design. And then we can't make it, oh, come on, I trained you with that data. Now I want you to also do well with the other thing. It's, it's hard. I mean, sometimes it works out. We use the same network, few things in common. So this the leap from many, many, many specialized to a big general thing, a really general thing is right. hard, but it can cover some of that space. So that is uh, where I think it is. So just today, a few hours before we started speaking, I saw a post about an artificial intelligence. Uh, I think it was a neural network that plays the game Diplomacy, which I've never played, but apparently is, is a game of strategy and deceit where the two of us would basically talk to each other and haggle and bargain over patches of land, much like diplomats would do um, in order to resolve a war or to further their own ends, to expand their empire. It's one of these empire games people like to play, it seems. And there's yes. an artificial intelligence yes. Yes. playing with this playing this game that was apparently in the top 10% of scorers on this network. And I looked at two of the conversations it was having. This was like, oh, you know, I'll give you Turkey if, if you give me half of Iran. It's like these kinds of conversations. And even more complex strategical things like, you know, it would be unwise for me to give you Iran because it has, its borders are difficult to protect. Like, you know, real reasoning, right? And also it's a zero sum game. So my, my win is your loss. And I legitimately could not tell which one was the artificial intelligence and which one was the human. And in fact, I guessed it wrong. So this, obviously this brings up the theme of the Turing test. So I guess, I mean, my question here is like, how do you react to this? Uh, you know, as a lay person, I react to this with shock that it's gotten this good this quickly. And given how new the field is, you know, is there anything that narrow AIs aren't going to get better than us at? And how far do you see this going? Like, uh, is, are there going to be, are the, is the next book, Can We Trust AI, that's written by an AI going to be better than your book, right? 
<laughs> I hope not, <laughs> because that that can be mass produced and that probably can be sold at much cheaper <laughs> price. Yes, it's uh, well. I I have uh, not heard of the diplomacy game, but the underlying mathematics that you say is very well established, right? Game theory, you know, zero sum game. In fact, one of the generative adversarial networks, GANs, you may have heard about, which can synthesize uh, images and videos and all that stuff is in a setup in a min-max game. There is a generator, there is a discriminator. The, the classic example we say is, you know, you have a nice printer and a paper, you print a $100 bill and take it to the bank, and the teller says, no, 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 this is not good. I'm not going to give you any money. And then you go back, get a better printer and get a paper, and you just go through it again and again. Finally, the teller can't tell the difference between a $100 bill and you, the, what you have brought and gives you 520s. This is basically generative adversarial network. So the idea of game theory being part of that is is very well known. And also, we think AI is no, but AI has been AI actually. If it is a person, it's ready to <laughs> gain social security payment now or Medicare, right? Nineteen fifty six. Right, 44 plus 22, 66 years. So it's ready. It just that many things have happened and, and kind of it has developed over six decades. So we, you know, we, we should not forget that. So the diplomacy thing, I think, uh, as you say, even in that domain, it may look like a more relatable game, right? What you're talking about, you know, bartering and so forth. And it's like when I was growing up in India, I used to play a game called trade, very similar to that. A lot of cities in Mumbai, various neighborhoods, a lot of various you know, money, fake money and buy and sell and so forth. So I think uh, computers can do this very well. Decision making. What I will say, Mr. Coleman, is we don't have to worry about AI versus us. I think that period is gone. It's AI with us. All that is where we have to focus on. I can see, you know, people worried about this in many applications. An AI can be a, a little engine sitting next to me and it can look at the data it can make decisions faster. It can come up with ideas, proposals. Do you think this makes sense and so on? And a human can work with AI. That's where we are going to see bridging of the special AI and the, and the general AI. And it is possible. Okay. For example, imagine a situation, a patient, a doctor, and an AI. As more and more AI gets integrated in medicine, AI can look at the data for the entire period that you have been around. And it can look for things that have changed. It can read electronic health records. It can look at diagnostic images. It can even remember the conversations that you had with your doctor three years ago. It can continuously mine the data and see and then give some ideas to the physician. The physician is seeing a lot of people. If I quickly look at your thing and say, oh, okay, I remember. But there is a, a computer sitting, an algorithm sitting and mining data and so forth. So if, if it, that is done properly. It will just come with ideas. So I, that is how I, I view. I never worry that AI, you know, some special task, sure, it can do better than me, faster than me, like uh, the diplomacy thing that you talk about and many other applications. Car driving, right? AI can make a very quick decision and so on. But AI working with the specialist, AI and human together, that is where we are going to see progress. It's not appropriate at all applications. You know, humans, we are slow. We are better decision makers, hopefully, but it takes time for us, whereas AI can do things faster, being a computer-based decision. So I don't worry about, uh, I think, you know, there are many, many examples where this kind of a Turing test ideas come into our conversation, but I'm interested in, in the human yeah. AI working together. Okay. So 
Let's talk about facial recognition software. This takes up a a lot of space in your book. So you say in your book that AIs have been used in facial recognition software in hiring decisions and in police arrest decisions and so forth. Can you give some specific examples here in how they've been used and some of the promises of their use and some of the problems with their use? Yeah, I don't know if I have, I think you probably are talking about a study group I was involved in, you know, state senator, Maryland state senator, Charles Sidnor put together a group of us, myself as an academician and uh, people from you know, police departments and people from attorneys, state attorney generals and ACLU and many other units. The idea was to come up with a, a bill, a regulation, right? That is somewhat lacking right now in face recognition. You know, some cities have stopped using them and some want to use them and so on. So they, we were trying to come up with a bill that can be presented in the state of Maryland. And so I was part of that and we heard about how police is using, you know, face recognition and so forth. There are some things we mentioned in the book about, you know, how face recognition system was used in some situations in Baltimore and so forth. I think face recognition, I worked on the problem since 1992. It's a natural object recognition problem. And unlike recognizing a car or a a fruit or an object, it's a natural recognition problem. There are good uses of that in cases um, such as missing children, identifying them and uh, missing children and exploited children and this, you know, who is doing harm and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the face recognition is used for access control. If you uh, want to board an aircraft, I have done it in London Heathrow. I just present my uh, board card and it's a picture comes, a camera takes my picture, it says you are ready to go, are verifying that your luggage is in the plane and so on. So there are lots of uh, those applications. But face recognition is not perfect. So what happens if an innocent person is wrongly accused based on an output of a face recognition algorithm? That's not a good thing. I always say any technology that does not serve well all segments of society is something that has to be looked at, regulated and fixed. We have to do that. In fact, you know of the 2018 MIT report uh, that came out. The researchers did a fantastic seminal study of collecting no data from light-skinned males and females from the Netherlands, dark-skinned males and females from some African countries. They applied three existing commercial face recognition systems, found that they were not performing well for gender classification when it came to dark-skinned females and males, right? That is a seminal work that really uh, caused concern because what has happened is from face recognition bias that we saw there, the gender classification has morphed into AI bias. If you say you are working in AI, that's the thing people ask about. You know, AI is, has bias, so how do you handle that? So I'm very you know, concerned about that. So we developed algorithms that will reduce bias and keeping the performance the same. What we are finding is there is a trade-off between bias and performance, okay? So, but nobody knows how much bias you should have, ideally zero. There are two approaches to handle this. You can start afresh because when people designed face recognition system, they just collected data and they did that. And then now we say, oh my God, it doesn't do things right. So you can drop and start afresh, or you can take some of the existing high-performance systems and poke them, analyze them, and see how much bias they have for gender, how much bias they have against dark skins, ethnicity, age, and then try to introduce new machine learning methods that will reduce the bias, keeping the performance the same, right? So that's what 
our goal, we have done that on a couple of recent papers. We have done adversarial training, knowledge distillation, those kinds of approaches. So, but when you really think about it, right? Please tell me if I'm, you know, taking more time, we can move to the other things. As you, as we say, deep learning is based on data. So properly curating data and make sure the data is balanced. These are good practices to uh, do while designing these systems. And so in, in the case, was, so just a quick question. Yeah, in the case of the Norwegians versus Africans, was it yeah. just the fact that the, the neural network was trained yeah. on Norwegian faces or was it, it was equally trained on, on all faces? No, they were not. They were trained on, I think what happened was the commercially existing, uh, the three things that they tried, three systems, they had not been trained right. uh, enough on uh, dark-skinned males and females. The right. data set was mostly, you know, Caucasian data sets. That was the problem, right? So you have to, so this is what we call domain shift. So if you train on one kind of a data, a demography, and you want to go and test it on others, performance will be different, will typically go down. But what people have also found, if you train your face recognition, a very, very large number of identities, like you know, millions of identities, which only companies can do, university professors, we don't have the resources to do that. Then it seems to have a better generalization process. Again, these are all empirical things, right? One of the issues we have, uh, Mr. Coleman, is that this deep learning is so difficult mathematically to understand. It's a very complex nonlinear mapping from data to the labels. So we are not able to give you performance bounds. You know, we're not able to tell you when it says it's Rama, how confident is the network that it's Rama? It's very hard to come up with those things. So that, those are some of the open problems we have to solve. Okay, so that's that's one kind of bias that can happen with neural networks. But I think there's another kind of bias that can happen, which is slightly different and which is it's similar to how insurance companies, like a car insurance company can charge me a higher premium because I'm a 26 year old male. Even if I'm actually a very safe driver, it will judge me by the aggregate statistics of my class. At least I know insurance companies do this for age. I think they're not allowed to do it for things like gender and race, even though in theory, they could probably make even more accurate predictions about who's going to get in in a car crash if they could take these things into into account. We outlaw it because it's actually, at that point, you're just discriminating against people on the basis of, of things they can't control. And so you talk about some examples where police departments, one was really shocking in Pasco County, Florida, where they tried to predict who would commit crime based on using it, using an artificial intelligence. And in this case, it was a mostly white county. So there wasn't a racial element to it in that case. It was just more of a civil liberties problem there. But you can imagine people taking all these variables into account. And actually, you know, I've seen examples where people try to predict recidivism rates and God forbid race was somehow correlated and had predictive power, you would want some kind of way to prevent the algorithm from taking it into account. So have you thought about this problem much and have you seen some examples of it play out? Yeah, I think the uh, the Florida thing is we discuss it, but mm-hmm. I don't think they use it anymore because they got into trouble, right? See, with insurance example you mentioned, every year my home insurance premium goes up, state form, every year it goes up. I ask, hey, I never asked a penny from you. Originally, it was like 900. Now I'm paying 2000. You know what the answer is? We have so much hurricane in Florida. 
and we have to pay for all of them. And I'm sorry, you are part of the entire family. If something happens to you, you know, money is going to come from them. So we are in this, that's a, always the reason they give. So for your car insurance, that is the example you get, as you say, you have a perfect record, but your premium can go up or because of just your age, age group. It always reminds me of uh, these experiences I've had. When I was teaching at USC, Anytime I went on a foreign trip for a conference trip, when I return, invariably a customs officer will tap me on the shoulder when I'm waiting for the luggage. So once they ask me, hey, are you bringing any hashish? I said, what's that drug? I said, no. Okay, so fine. Another time they asked me, what do you do here? I said, I'm an assistant professor at USC. What do you teach? Electrical engineering. Do you know Ohm's law? (laughs) Ohm's law is taught in high school. So what do you say? You, you argue or you just say, I said, well, the voltage across the resistor is in a product of current and resistor. Okay, thank you. Have a good day, sir. So these things happen, right? What I feel sometimes, if an AI algorithm is looking at me, it'll say, Rama, Chalapa just landed. He does electrical engineering. He has a PhD from Purdue. I don't think I should ask him about Ohm's law. Still, the AI can ask me, hey, where did you go? What have you done? Are you bringing any food, etc.? Those are legitimate questions you know, a customs officer can ask. But when I say I'm an assistant professor asking me to recite Ohm's law that is taught in elementary school, not elementary school, maybe these days, but in those days at least high school. So we have these kinds of issues, right? It's uh, what I feel is AI algorithms can have these kinds of issues and humans have these kinds of issues. I can probe an AI algorithm I can understand what it is biased towards. I cannot probe a human to figure out what the human does. So while we are legitimately concerned about AI bias, every form, all biases are wrong, right? All biases are wrong, inappropriate, but we can probe it. As I like to say, AI does not lie, humans may. So that that is the big thing for me when I look at these issues is I can go and probe an AI algorithm and I can fix it. And so our decision-making process, we have to carefully evaluate the decision maker. But an algorithm allows you to test it. It's very difficult to do with humans who are in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Yeah. And they may not even know. It's So we're in this time where people are very concerned about racism and racial bias, wherever it appears. I think, I think you make a really good point, which is that whatever problems AI presents in terms of racial bias, we have to compare how good it is against how good humans are. So there's, so it, it need not be perfect in order to be better than the status quo. So f- for example, there was some famous study years ago, I don't know if it's held up, about Israeli judges. And it basically asks why Israeli judges made the sort of paroling decisions that they did. Like if they have 10 cases to decide one day, it found that they would make more lenient decisions when they had just eaten lunch and they would make harsher decisions when they were hungry. Everything else held equal, right? That's something I think anyone can relate to who knows what it's like to be hangry. And AIs don't get hungry. You know, whatever problems they have, I think there's so, we have some trepidation about handing over these decisions to machines because it's scary and it's smacks of science fiction dystopia. Um, but on the other hand, I think we ought to be open to it yeah. because we can't say as a society we're trying to correct for biases and then not explore a really rich potential solution to that problem. Yeah, that's what I feel. I feel I can probe an AI algorithm and understand its biases, its behavior. 
And when it comes to comparing an AI with humans, AI has an advantage there, right? So I think we need to fix it. Any technology that does not serve everybody in the society is a problem, is a problem. Right. So we have to be cognizant of that. And I think some of these things are happening because we are so much dependent on data. And the way, you know, if you are using data that has been collected under different sets of societal rules and conditions and behaviors and so forth, there may be some bias in the data itself. Right. You know, so we have to be careful. But statistics, you know, people have looked at it. For example, there are many, many polls for election times. They say there is one poll for Rasmussen poll, which always says the Republicans do better or something like that, because how you sample, where, who you talk to. So anytime you are with data, it's a problem. I always say data is not perfect. You know, math is perfect. Physics is perfect. I like to think at least that's true. But when you deal with data, it's the outcome we are measuring. We make errors, we make mistakes, we may not do the experiments properly and so on. But we have to acknowledge these things. I, I want everybody to acknowledge that there are issues with the AI algorithms. We understand that and we have to fix it as technology gets better. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the use of AI in medicine. In your book, you discuss how yes. AI has long been better than human doctors at certain narrow diagnostic tasks. And I've seen recent reports saying that an AI can, you know, can look at an X-ray and be better than your average doctor at telling you whether you have certain kind of tumor or, or something like this. This all seems very promising. And in the limit, there's a possibility of an AI, you know, looking at all of your health markers and telling you when you're likely to die. And this is a, something you discuss in your book. How, what do you think we're going to see here in the next few decades? What are the uses that are going to be really good in medicine? And how much of a typical doctor's job do you think will end up being replaced with AI? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me address the latter question first. My two children are doctors. I hope AI does not replace them. <laughs> they worked very hard to become doctors, so that's good. I think, again, I don't see it as a replacing. I see it as augmenting. You know, where AI can be useful, I think AI can make our lives better, especially we have a five-year grant from National Institute of Aging to explore AI and related technologies for healthy aging. So we are looking at funding many companies, many investigators. They are looking at detection and monitoring of dementia, Alzheimer's, fall prevention, you know, elderly senior citizens, you know, if they fall coming down the stairs or so on. And it's a lot of complications, hip hip replacement surgery and this and that. In-house aging. A lot of people want to stay in their home and age rather than going to a nursing care and so forth. So there are, you know, wearable sensors that we can, like you have simple Fitbits and Apple Watch and all of those things. More and more, those will be exploited. Sometimes, you know, I'm 69 years old. Sometimes I forget to take my medications. So I I don't know, you know, so, so what I do is I make sure I keep them ready when I have to take AI can remind me. And also there are other things that AI can do. Robotics and AI can combine together for providing companionship. And, uh, you know, there are even companies that are building robots that could visit nursing homes with late stage dementia patients and give them some amount of happiness because they sometimes they they react when there are conversations and, and so forth. More importantly, what we found recently, in addition to people having these kinds of health issues, caregivers, 
if a family member has dementia or Alzheimer's, who is giving care? Family member, they're not trained for that. It is very emotionally stressful. I have a friend whose mother has uh, Alzheimer's now. And uh, so AI apps to help the caregivers. So it's just kind of going beyond what we would normally expect, right? Those are things. And we are actually using uh, techniques from artificial intelligence for detection of not Alzheimer's, the uh, disease uh, for young, you know, children, Asperger, this is called autism, autism spectrum, as young as 14 months old by how they interact with their uh, clinical uh, person, where their gaze is, are they looking at the face, are they looking at the object? There is some belief uh, even six months it is revealed. And you know, if we know a health issue early enough, the general idea is we can do something about it, right? So we are using facial phenotyping we're doing experiments with the leading critical care doctor at Hopkins for monitoring stroke recovery. So I think you are going to see many, many places. All of this used to help the doctors because, you know, doctors are overworked. Mm-hmm. I see my two children who are doctors, they're overworked. And sometimes they do 24 hours at a stretch, 36 hours at a stretch. So these kinds of additional uh, algorithms, AI systems, will be helpful for them to make uh, better decisions because algorithms don't tire. The doctors can get tired, right? If you have a 24-hour anesthetic anesthesia thing, you know, towards the end, you may not be as clear-headed as you were at the beginning. We are all humans. So they are trained to do those things. So I think it's going to help. I, again, want to look at the triplet, AI patient and doctor. Together, do they reach a better solution for the patient? That is where we should be going. I don't worry about replacing. This has been talked about. Oh, once uh, we figure out how to read x-rays, all radiologists will go home. (laughs) That doesn't happen. But in fairness, it does seem like some jobs are going to be taken by AI. Maybe not the doctor, maybe not, maybe not the, I mean, certainly not the nurses, I think. But in society, generally speaking, I'm seeing how good AIs are, these GANs or GANs, I guess, how good these GANs are getting at creating images and I shudder for the fear of the graphic design profession. Like, you know, if I, as a podcaster, want to update my podcast logo, what makes more sense for me to just plug into a GAN, create podcast cover for Conversations with Coleman, and it can give me a hundred options, five of which may be incredible. And maybe that's even free software. Maybe it's cheap. Yes. Or to pay and deal with some graphic designer that may or may not actually do what I want. And now I have to deal with a human. It's scary for jobs like that. Yes. And this also connects to the problem of deep fakes. You know, there there was a deep fake of President Zelensky, which fortunately was just flagged early and didn't seem to create too many problems, at least that I know of. But just today, I saw that there was a deep fake of Elon Musk Mm -hmm. circulating on TikTok, where he was just saying something very flippant about firing all of his employees and being very blasé and kind of cruel. And men, apparently many people in the comment sections believe yeah. that it was real. So how do we deal with, I guess, I guess I asked two yeah. different questions in one. It one is, is serious problem. do you agree that many jobs are going to be taken by AI? And um, do you worry about that as a societal problem? And then number two, this problem of deep fakes, do you think that this is a, a non-issue and we're going to be able to flag everything early or is this actually going to be a big problem? Yeah, I'll take the first one. Some jobs 
that are routinely done will be taken over by AI. A classic example is welding in automobile cars. Cars, you can see robots can go and build them beautifully. Before, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was probably done by a human, right? Now robot arms can do that. So that means some humans have lost their job. Unfortunately, this has happened over decades and decades when industrial revolution came there was a shift in the kind of jobs that are available and now we are able to book our flights by on the web right when i was a student i will go to a travel agency company at in west lafayette i will talk to a person and say where i want to go and so there were three four of them right travel agency company even united airlines will have sub offices where you can talk what happened to all of them because the web has become so good we can do it on the web you go to airport when you now have to take care of your own baggage tagging and before there used to be a lot of people a lot of people on the counters now they're just coupled because everybody checks in online they go and show their thing and then it prints out the luggage they put it and they just throw it in there so this is you know inevitable and it's not peculiar to ai it has happened over the you know decades so we have to get help for people who are affected and get them training, get them skills so that they can find the jobs that they need. And that is something we have to do as a society. My concern also related to this is education. If uh, you have a bachelor's degree in computer science or any of the engineering, the kind of jobs that you can get is different from if you can get a non-technical, the difference is now widening, right? The kind of people that Amazon wants to hire or Google wants to hire and so forth. So there is that issue also. And that is not peculiar to you. That's just the technology is advancing. If these companies want to hire you, you got to have the qualifications they are expecting. So we have to continuously improve the education we provide to our people and so on so they can you know, get the job that they like to have and make a decent living. I think that is how it's it's going to happen anytime a new technology is introduced. For example, right in front of our eyes when Uber came, this is not any technology, right? I mean, Uber came because they're able to do the web-based thing. And Barwood Taxi Company in, in Washington area saw a big drop in the number of cars and taxi drivers. So that is because it's a new business model. It's more efficient and people just call in and it comes and so forth. And it was cheaper before. I don't know what it is now. So, you know, this is bound to happen. Okay, so that's one thing. So regarding second question, deep fakes are a big problem. We actually have been working for Defense Advanced Research Project Agency for several years now. There's one project called Medifor, Media Forensics. Now an extension of this is known as semaphore, semantic forensics. A number of researchers are working on this. So false information can cause problems. And uh, like the one you mentioned with uh, Zelensky and Elon Musk, there's actually a video of uh, President Obama being saying things and somebody else, you know, put words in his video and so forth. This has uh, been there for some time. So there are a lot of these things are happening. We do have some methods to determine whether it's really Chalapa or it's an avatar of Chalapa that's talking to you now. Has this face been produced by a GAN or it's a natural face? So there are some algorithms that can determine if a face is synthetic or real. In fact, one of the earliest uh, example of that is the GAN generated image did not have a matching earrings for a lady. <laughs> so this, oh, it can be that, you know. So there are subtle cues in terms of blinking of the eye, expressions and so on that will tell you. In semantic forensics, we are going a step ahead. You have a picture, you have a text. You may be able to modify the text much easier. For example, 
there is a picture of children with balloons and ice cream smiling with moms outside Capitol Hill. And then you read the text, a violent mob, you know, is outside Capitol Hill, la la la. There is inconsistency. So we are able to match, you know, figure out that this text doesn't go with this picture, so it must be a fake. So we can flag. As one of my distinguished friends at Berkeley, Hani Farid, says, the defense here is lagging behind the offense. It's easy to create, but it's a little harder to tag them right away and remove them. It takes time, takes time because algorithms are not there. There's so many ways in which you can alter things. So people have to be careful when they read anything. I don't have any TikTok. I don't have Twitter. So I have no idea how (laughs) all of this happens. But anything, don't believe everything you see. Please go and verify it. That is the only way. Algorithms are getting there, but it'll take time. Okay, so the final question I want to ask you is what's sometimes called the alignment problem. This is something that was really popularized by Nick Bostrom, the Oxford philosopher, and a lot of other people, Sam Harris, and um, I think maybe Max Tegmark and others have sort of talked about this. This is the idea that AI could develop intentions that differ from our own. And the, the famous example Bostrom gave was that if you tell a general intelligence to sort of maximize paper clips to make as many as possible. It may not have common sense and it might just use human bodies to make paper clips, right? And it's a deliberately crazy example, but the point is to highlight the fact that machines don't have any common sense that we don't program into them. And if they become powerful enough, you could get some really spooky scenarios. So I wonder if, I mean, this is something I, in theory, I can see the problem with it, but I just, it's hard to believe it could happen until I see it. It's one of those things and I haven't seen it, but obviously you don't want the first time you see it, you know, you don't want it to be too late the first time you see it. So this is a very sci-fi scenario that a lot of people have worried about. I'm curious if you have thought about it, do you think these fears are overblown or do you think they're legitimate and we should devote enormous resources to preventing a kind of apocalypse scenario? I think the word trust in the caption of my book, that's, you know, right. We have to develop trustworthy AI. That means we need to be able to provide performance bounds so that the kind of spooky thing, the probability of that happening is arbitrarily small. So we have to make sure where we apply. So you have to develop safety corridors. That's what I tell people. You know, it's very easily understood. Physical things like self-driving cars and, uh, you know, things that would, uh, even in medicine, we kind of know when things, you know, can go and we can control that. But I think some, even, you know, the famous Stephen Hawking had concerns about AI, right? I mean, he's a brilliant man based on his work and so on. He thought AI is going to kind of make life miserable for us and so on. All I tell people when they come up to me with, I said, please try an AI algorithm. Just, you know, I know maybe you're not a computer scientist. I tell them that it's okay. Find somebody who will sit with and just work with it and see what it does. All it may do is to improve our lives in some ways. It's not a panacea for everything, but the idea that it's going to go out of bounds and do all of that, I think it's all making interesting arguments. For example, I want to ask the question, will AI ever become a philosopher? What are the characteristics of a philosopher that you think an AI can or cannot have? I think it may make rational decisions, but whether it understands the morality of rational decisions, I don't know. I'm not a philosopher, but before we get to all those spooky things, we understand who a philosopher is now, right? 
can I make that? Because philosophy has been there and there are a lot of people who are experts in philosophy. Can we design an AI agent that is indistinguishable from the best philosopher, mm. what it would take? Because now we are going beyond object detection, fruits and uh, you know face and all of that. So I'm going to leave you with that question. What do you think an AI agent should have so that it is indistinguishable from you, Mr. Coleman, who has training in philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I, my guess would be feed it the entire history of the philosophical literature as its data, and I guess give it some sense of which philosophical texts have been the most influential. So, you know, Kant and the Buddha and so forth score those highly, and then it will begin to notice the difference between influential philosophy and non-influential philosophy, and then it will produce some 200-page tract that might look actually really, really impressive. Is that, uh, that seems possible, right? <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah, but it's not a philosopher. Well, it, it, uh, a human philosopher can transcend and can extrapolate and can change beliefs and, you know, can appreciate the subtle differences between, you know, Hindu philosophy and, and Buddhist philosophy and so forth. I, you know, so for if it is able to do that, then we can worry about, you right. know, it is right. going out. Even there, it's going to stay within bounds, right? It is not going to come and give it totally because it can only mm -hmm. extrapolate based on what it has read and to go outside the entire thing. I mean, there are always, you know, mm -hmm. small probabilities when some experiments can go wrong. Even well understood biological experiments, you know, mm -hmm. can take a, a nasty turn and things can happen, right? So I'm not saying AI algorithms uh, will ever, will never do that, but the chances are so, so small. It is, we are giving it too much credit, I think. It right now, based on data, it does certain things well. And when we bring the domain back into that, we'll have a better control of how it works and functions, and we'll be able to understand it better. The the kind of concerns expressed by the philosophers you mentioned, I think it's a great, it's a good topic to mm -hmm. think about, but not to be scared about. Yeah, so that's what I would say. Okay, Rama, your book is called "Can We Trust AI." And I encourage people to pick it up. And before I let you go, can you just, you mentioned you don't have a Twitter or a TikTok, but can you let my listeners know where to find you if they want to get more of your work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and uh, I think they can visit my website. It has information about the work we do. Okay, thanks. That's the best place. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, Coleman. Thank you. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.